Let you laugh. Um, so uh, Neil's not here today, obviously, as you can, uh, he, as you've gathered, uh, he's on his holidays, uh, well-deserved holiday too. And um, Gemma, yes, Gemma, uh, the current wife, is with me instead. So I was going to do the podcast by myself. I said to Neil, "You go, you go," because he he was going to do it. He was going to do it from Devon. And I said, "No, have a break. You need a break." And so I said, "I would do it by myself." The Fuji Cast. And then Gemma said, I know what, I'll come and do it with you. And uh, this is this is the start of the show, but we're actually an hour into recording <laughs> because we've made so many, so many mistakes. Uh, and if you wait till the end of the show, you can hear some of those mistakes. So you must wait till the end. None of them are mine. <laughs> so as I said, we have been doing this for, for quite a long time this afternoon. And uh, there was there was a, a Patreon bump to the front question from Joshua Lathman. Uh, which was huge, huge question, really, really interesting. Uh, however, there's no way we can read it again. So we will, I promise you, Joshua, it will be in next week's show uh, when the professional is back. Um, so we have, we're going to just crack on, go straight to it, straight to the Facebook group. And uh, Gemma's going to take the first question. Off you go. This is a question from Nick from Greece. Uh, a question for Kevin. Let's say I wanted to create a site using a platform A, WordPress, and then listening to you every Monday, I decide to move to a platform B, Squarespace. Is it possible to transform my content or do I have to start over? Um, yeah, so you can actually transfer your content from WordPress to Squarespace if you so wish and vice versa. In fact, uh, there is an option in Squarespace to import directly from WordPress sites. Uh, you just put in your username and password and it will do its best to go and get the data and bring it all in however i did find that, that wasn't particularly reliable so typically what i would do when i was moving everything from wordpress to squarespace is i would export from wordpress via xml so in wordpress you go down to settings i think it's called import export and you export a just a standard wordpress xml file and then you can go to squarespace and under the uh, import options instead of choosing wordpress choose an xml file point to that XML file and uh, and it will bring it all in. Uh, it's worth noting though that if you've got a lot of data, you might want to do it in stages rather than just one huge massive file um, because the Squarespace, I, I'm not sure if they, they publicly say there's a, a file size limit, but I found that it, it just didn't work with big files. So smaller chunks and uh, yeah, it's certainly possible. I did it for f16.click, brought everything in and that was a, that was a huge site. Uh, you need a little bit of patience, but but certainly doable. Uh, so yeah, thanks for that, Nick. Good question. You've probably gathered that we're both in Bunker Malmesbury rather than uh, Neil Swanky Studio, and so um, well, yeah. Let's just crack on. Here's a question from uh, Johan Borhead. Uh, he says, "Hi Barbie, hi Ken," which is very apt. Yep, you be Barbie, I'll be Ken. <laughs> uh, he says, uh, "When you fall in love with a camera, what are the three things you mostly tend to like? The looks, the image quality, or the shape and the grip, or is it technological or software functionality like high frame rate, film simulations, etc.?" Well, I think I can probably speak for both Neil and myself when when it, we say that the most important thing is functionality. As a professional photographer, has to be you know you have to be getting a camera that does the job for you. Um, whether that is uh, from a filming point of view or a sales point of view, it just has to has to do the job. Um, but actually, you know, also enjoyability of using the camera is is really really important i used to have dslrs back in the day and and dslrs are different now and i get that and you know the things have changed shapes and ergonomics and all that kind of stuff but for me it was it was just a big black box that i would take to a wedding and i never really enjoyed using it and then when the original x100 come along it was you know it was a pleasure to use it it, w it was a real challenge to use that first camera that first x100 but i knew straight away that i was enjoying using that camera a lot more so yeah i think functionality has got to be kind of the preference as a professional photographer and then ultimately yeah well not so much for me about what it looks like but the size of it the the kind of feel of it in my hands that kind of stuff all right back to the facebook group thank you so much for those who are putting questions in there by the way we do need more of course we always need more the more the merrier so keep them coming and they don't have to be about uh, photography necessarily 
as this one isn't. This is from Jake Hilder, and he says, question, big exclamation mark. What does everyone wear when photographing weddings? I get roasting when concentrating, so just smart jeans, shirt and a tie, Tweedy-style waistcoat, and in brackets, mainly to keep the belly and shirt in place, comfy shoes or boots. Hmm. Well, I'm going to let Gemma explain what I look like when I go to a wedding. You, well, when you first started, you used to look like Johnny Cash. Do you remember? <laughs> Everything was black, and you had like a black. Do you remember with a little black skinny tie? Yep. 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 And then you had a little geography teacher phase where you had like <laughs> a tweedy jacket and chinoy type things. And then you had your Columbo phase. But then you went to the gym a lot, and you had your quite, you know, sexy Zara, Zara man about town look. So I, I quite like that one. But normally, what, white shirt? Black or blue trousers, no tie, maybe a jacket if it's winter, and some brown shoes. <laughs> yeah, like brown shoes. You paint a, you, paint a picture. You've got blue shoes. I have Elvis got style. I got blue suede shoes. Yeah, um, yeah. Pretty much, she's she's nailed it there. I, in terms of what I wear, I wear. Um, I don't wear denim uh, trousers, but as comfortable uh, trousers as I can possibly find, um, you, you know, with an elasticated waist these days. And, yeah, white shirt, and I'll, I'll take a jacket. I, one key thing is to have two shirts in the car, though, because if you do find, especially now, you know, the weather's changed here in the UK, uh, as last week anyway, and uh, I find that, you know, you somewhere halfway through the wedding, you might think, oh, I might need to change my shirt. So have a spare shirt in the car, be useful. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's it, isn't it? I remember going to a wedding a few years back and uh, went just as I would normally go. And uh, I suddenly realised it was a very, 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 very high-end wedding. And uh, I didn't look very, 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 very high-end in, in, in what I was wearing. So I had to pop back to the car and dig out a tie and, you know, change the shirt into the one that was a bit less, least iron. And, uh, a bit more ironed. It? Yeah, a bit more ironed even. And that was it. So, um, yeah, wedding attire. I do see the videographers. I mean, Neil's got some great stories on this as well, but some of the videographers that turn up, honestly, they look like they're from Busted, the band or something. You know, they just turn up with, uh, you know, ripped jeans and T-shirts. I think it was Neil that was saying he was at a a wedding once and a a videographer turned up and he had a a great big Guns N' Roses T-shirt on and everything. And, you know, you you do need to just take a little bit of responsibility, I think. Uh, right. Okay. Next question, and then we will uh, we'll, we'll move quickly into the interview. Um, going up, 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 up. Um, okay. So here's a question from Daniel Kiss. Daniel Kiss. Daniel Kiss. I know there's so many cool names, isn't there? And he says, would it make sense to buy the X100F in 2021 instead of the V? And, uh, well, ultimately, that comes down to budget and requirements. Of course, the X100V is a better camera than the X100F, you know, hands down, simple as that. However, just because the X100V came out, it doesn't mean that the X100F became a lesser camera. It's always been the same camera, and for a long time, it was the best X100 in the range. So if the X100F does what you need it to do, and uh you know it's it's a budget thing then then get your x100f there's some great deals on at the moment in terms of secondhand ones as well uh if you really need that kind of uh extra capability in terms of the autofocus and the the new lens and you know the video capabilities and all of that stuff then then yeah the x100v is going to be best but but honestly the, the the time makes no difference and, you know, we all, we just had a question about kind of the look and feel of cameras and the, the retro nature of them. And, and there's many people who are getting back into film photography with older cameras and everything. So, yeah, I mean, ultimately, really does just go down to, to what you want, what you need, what you can afford. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the X100F was my favourite camera uh, for a very long time, even over the X-Pro2 and the X-T range, all that kind of stuff. I love that X100F. So, yeah, your mileage may vary. Or you could just lie to your wife and buy an X100V in the middle of a lockdown, pretend it's something else. I didn't pretend it was something else. I pretended it was an X. I told you it was an X100V. I just pretended that it it was on loan from Fujifilm. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, this is from Paul. uh, Is that a silence? Zillard. 
What do you reckon? Zillard? Zillard, I reckon it's one of your favourite silence. Silent letters. Pointless things, silent letters. What a waste of space. But it might not be. It could be Zillard, or it could be Zillard, or it could be Zillard. Anyway, Paul is bringing us back to episode 168, when we did have a question about whether Fujifilm would release uh, 35mm film cameras that use the XF lenses. And uh, we basically waffled through the answer because... We didn't really know uh, the technicalities of it, but Paul's come to the rescue. He says, uh, aside from the financial business cases, it's not technically possible as the XF lenses cover the APS-C sensor and not full-frame 35mm film. Additionally, the flange distance of mirrorless cameras is too short to allow uh, for a DSLR mirror box or an adapter. And there you go. Uh, he also goes on to say, regarding the sharpness of the lens of the X100V versus the character of the older lenses, I suggest people go into the Q menu and adjust sharpness to a negative number. Experiment with different values, aperture and subject distance. Of course, there's always Gaussian blur in pro- post-production. Now, I remember when the X100V was being um, discussed we had a product meeting and some of the photographers were invited to that product meeting. And one of the questions that came up actually from the developers, from the um, designers of the, the camera was, uh, you know, will the, will the new lens lose the character uh, that the older, the older lens kind of inherited? Um, and it was muted that there might even be an option in the camera that kind of uh, just softened things a little bit. But but it was it was put to bed pretty quick because it just doesn't make any sense. And as Paul pointed out, that you you can always just reduce the sharpness slightly, or you can you know you can adjust it in post production if you really want it to look like the uh, the previous lens, the character in the previous lens. Uh, I I can't really tell a difference. I have to say between the X one hundred V and X one hundred F in terms of the character of the lens. Um, all I know is that it's it's sharper, it's quicker, it's faster, um, it's just better all round, generally better. Um, but yeah, so uh, thanks for that, Paul. Good, um, glad we've uh, we've sorted that out. Right, so Gemma's got a question for us. I think apparently I got a question for you and Neil. Neil, I'll have to answer it next week. Back in lockdown days, when you were doing the daily podcast in the front room, you got all excitable about you were going to go out and shoot street photography and you were going to go up to people and you were going to be braver and you were as soon as you were you and Neil were allowed back out you were you were on it you were you were because you were feeling like you couldn't go anywhere not even out for more than one dog walk a day and then you 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 were going to forget about all your insecurities of walking up to people and asking them to take their pictures and you were going to do it and you haven't done it no, uh, I haven't done it actually. And, and funny enough, the interview we've got coming up with Spencer, he mentions his. Uh, he did a little project where he forced himself to take a picture of a uh, stranger every day for a year, and we talked about that a little bit in the in the interview, which you can hear in a bit. But no, you're right, I haven't. And but to be honest with you, I still haven't gone anywhere really. I can't. I haven't been to London. I haven't been anywhere. Workshops are still not really starting up. Um, so. The plan, my original plan, when we, when we discussed that, was that you know Neil and I would grab each other, we'd we'd go to London and we'd force each other into this out of our comfort zones and uh, you know just kind of t- grab strangers and and ask them if we could take their portraits. Um, but you're right, it hasn't happened. Don't you think you're always waiting for the perfect time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's going on? Yeah, you. It's <laughs> like character assassination of some kind. <laughs> uh, so this question is from uh, Girish from uh, Taiping in Malaysia. And oh, Gemma. Gemma's going to read this. Dear Neil and Kevin, I don't often write in, perhaps only once before when I couldn't answer, uh, access a particular episode on Overcast. I confess I'm not, I've not been much up to date on the podcast due to being swamped with work and family responsibilities. Listening to your podcast has become the equivalent of a particular dish or beverage one so often desires to the extent it becomes a divining favourite, but one doesn't get the chance to savour it as much as one likes nice i normally just go yada 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 at that point oh (laughs) could have told me um i've reached episode 160 finally and have attained some sort of regularity and been able to tune in more the run of episodes beginning with zyzer as a guest and culminated with pete reed as a guest on the show was amongst if not the best i've had the pleasure of listening to podcast wise any podcast for that matter the consecutive episodes had what the french say je ne sais quoi there was banter there was reflection there was a lot more um, at the risk of making this missive longer I shall refrain from mentioning. Kevin often comes across as a practical person, sometimes acerbic. The interview he conducted with Pete Reed was not to, not to put 
to your final point on it, a form of humanity at its best. My respect and esteem for the both of you has risen significantly. The interview, if it may be referred to as such, perhaps a conversation between two friends would be more appropriate. As Reddit mentions, Kevin remembered the human. Respect for others with their different qualities and weaknesses. I think Pete got as much out of the interview as the audience who were privileged to listen in, perhaps more. I have a question, or possibly a question statement. I apologise if it it has been discussed before. What does success mean in photography? If one makes his or her living from it, well, that's apparent success. For photographers who don't make a living and regard it as a hobby or a pursuit or some form of enthusiasm, perhaps it would be more difficult to define. Would success in this group mean consistent self-satisfaction concerning the pictures one has made? I was struck by this line of thought, hearing someone write in saying that they were unhappy taking pictures which they didn't feel were particularly good. I came into photography fascinated by myriad possibilities a digital camera was capable of and gradually gear seemed to take predominance. This has been reset since I've embarked on film photography and receiving neutral scans. Post-processing seems largely unnecessary. Perhaps success is being happy with oneself and recognising and accepting limitations with a prevalent sense of gratitude in being able to do something which one loves. I've written too much. My apologies. You guys take care and keep safe. Kind regards. Girish. Yeah, well, it's a lovely uh, email, isn't it? It's a lovely email and I really didn't do any justice because I'm rubbish at reading aloud. Um, so, uh, and, and so thanks for the kind words, by the way, um, about the interviews and everything. And of course, you, you know, we both, uh, we all try our best when, we, when we, we're interviewing people. And I think that when it comes to this idea of success in photography, uh, Giresh, you alluded to it in terms of, is it simply people are paying you and that means you're successful? To a certain extent, I think that's true. But also it comes down to what makes you happy and what makes you feel like you're successful. I, I would hazard a guess that, you know, Neil and I, you know, somebody said to me, do you think you've been successful in your career? I would say, yeah, probably I have done. I've, I've done pretty much everything I, I you know, I, I wanted to do and, and I, you know, I'm kind of carrying on with that. And I think the same for Neil as well. I mean, Neil has, has photographed nearly a thousand weddings. You know, that's, that's definitely, you, you don't photograph a thousand weddings if you're not successful. So I think ultimately, you know, the, the idea of, you know, going back to the basics or not necessarily the basics, but going back to shooting film and, and you know, looking at the neutral scans of it and, and being happy with the pictures, is that a form of success? Yeah, of course it is, because you're just being happy with it. And ultimately, if uh, certainly if you're not, if you don't have to make money from it, then success is simply whether you enjoy it and whether people enjoy looking at those images that's that's really what it comes down to and it doesn't matter what those images whether they're taken on a phone whether they're film whether they're taken on medium format makes no difference whatsoever and uh you know i think that that's i think that's a kind of benchmark of success really is you know if if it makes somebody smile or somebody think or you know in 20 years time you, you know you people are probably fed up with me saying this but you know the benign pictures of today are the nostalgic pictures of the future so success in certain sense might might have to wait but you know we all look at uh, books and everything these days and pictures on the internet and pictures in magazines and newspapers and everything and we often think yeah wow that's that's incredible you know i'd love to be published or i'd love to you know have my have a book published and uh, you know be a newspaper photographer or reporter yeah, I mean, that's success. But, you know, ultimately, like I said, you know, really it just comes down to being happy, doesn't it? I think, you know, when you're in a creative industry like this and, you know, it, it kind of goes back to the, the question we had earlier about uh, technology and, you know, what, what what you enjoy, really. I think it has to come to that. So, uh, yeah, thanks, Giresh. That was nice. I'm not sure. I think that might be our, may not be our first question from Malaysia, but certainly one of the first ones so thank you very much right on to the interview so uh so i'm gonna ask you a question Gemma. you know uh, patrick larock you may love patrick LaRock. yes everybody loves patrick enough that's enough of that but we um one of the things he did was he said to his wife i'm gonna go traveling around canada for a month uh, by myself and and so he did and uh in fact uh, Spencer Wynn, who is a uh, former Fujifilm ambassador, but a phenomenal photographer, 
uh, did a similar thing and uh, you can hear all about it in this interview. So I, I was really intrigued. I've been going through your website uh, with a fine tooth comb and stopping at almost every single picture. Um, but there's there's a wonderful line, and I, I, I presume it's it's one of your lines. It says, uh, "One can only truly tell a story of a people uh, if you have lived with the people." And uh, tell me a little bit more about that, and and what what you mean by that. Um, you know, I, I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot of um, journalists um, standing on the edges and looking at the situation because they don't want to put themselves or their uh, their thoughts into the story. But I think to really understand it, you've got to come away from the sidelines and get right into it. And as long as you are really true to the story and not make it about yourself, then that's really pr the perspective that I like. So whether it's been um, in my many trips in China, um, being in rural, rural, really small rural communities, or in India where we worked on a project for two years, uh, and a lot of that was from the position of the people who lived in the slum that was affected by the gas disaster. We had to get sort of right into the middle of it to really see and tell the story sympathetically rather than from an observation standpoint. Uh, so I, I understand you spent uh, it was two years working on the uh, 30th anniversary of the uh, Bhopal gas disaster. Um, so that must have been quite an intense time. It was. Um, this was uh, this was a story that uh, had to be told from uh, from a business standpoint. So Jennifer Wells, who is the the writer, she's a brilliant storyteller, but also has a really solid financial journalism background. So because this was a story um, about an, you know, a big American transnational company, it was in essence a business story, but it had a huge uh, human toll uh, to it as well. So uh, it happened back in the mid eighties and you know, a lot of people, I was aware of it just peripherally um, at the time, but a lot of people today don't know about it. So this was a story worth retelling, um, you know, to sort of a younger generation because the uh, corporate responsibilities haven't changed. Uh, the way people behave haven't changed. Uh, so it was really an important story to tell. And in order to tell it really well, we needed to tell it from you know, from inside the slum that was across the street that was devastated that night. Um, and also from the point of view of the survivors. And many of them told us that um, the dead were the lucky ones. So that was a, a really important story to tell. For those that are, don't understand what happened, just briefly tell us about the, the disaster. Uh, there's a... There's a chemical or a compound called methyl isocyanide, methyl isocyanide, or or um, mite, and that is that was kind of the magic bullet for the promise of a green revolution in uh, Indian agriculture, and it's a great idea. But in order to keep it stable, it had to be kept cool and in these huge tanks underground. But the local Union Carbide uh, plant. Uh, in order to save money, um, you know, they turned the they turned certain machines off to save money, and some of that was cooling. And to make a long story short, a little bit of water got into the system, created an exothermic reaction, and the thing blew. And rather than going up the huge tower to escape far above where people live. It, it just blew at the ground level. And because it's heavy, this cloud of white um, you know, smoke drifted across the street and into the community. And, and it was just after midnight, so most people were sleeping and they sleep on the ground. So this kind of fog just drifted across and you know, it was killing, killing people. Um, and I think oh, thousands of people died that night and others were just ran in terror. And it was a horrible, horrible tragedy. Um, and that, you know, that could easily happen today. 
So that was one of the reasons we needed to tell that story from that perspective. And lying in the same home as one of the survivors uh, in the same wooden shack on the ground with the rats, and that was the essence of that kind of storytelling. And how did the how did the people react to you being there? Were they did they presumably wanted to to, to tell the story? Um, but how about reacting with you personally as a as a photographer? Well, we stuck out like sore thumbs, obviously, because we're not part of the community, and it's not a place that sees a lot of tourists in this area because it's not a tourist area. But we did have. Um, we did have a survivor, a survivor who was our guide, and his family of 10 were wiped out that night, except for him, who was five months old, who was wrapped in a blanket uh, by his older sister and ran. So he, he was in a unique position to know the story, know the people, and he's also, he's also taken other journalists around. Um, you know, there was a film made with Martin Sheen. Um, so the people in the community were have been used to seeing outsiders come in and they're all they're all very excited to see you um but it's only when you talk to the older people uh, and you spend time with them that they they then can relax uh, with you and uh, you know tell their experiences but it's you know it's it's important and i you know you, you don't go in and just you know raise your camera and start taking pictures you have to spend time with people, get their get them comfortable, and then just to slowly bring out your camera and and you know it was pretty easy that way. But they have seen a lot of journalists kind of wandering around occasionally, um, so it wasn't it wasn't hostile or anything. Yeah, no, absolutely, and the pictures I think uh, kind of demonstrate that really. So uh, the story is is called the uh, Ghost of Bhopal, uh, and that that just what you said there kind of goes back to that that quote really that you can you can only really tell a story of the people if you if you live amongst them and and that that, that really does demonstrate it there's some there's some beautiful portraits and some really beautiful kind of storytelling pictures there as well i'm i'm intrigued by the ones of the presumably the interior pictures of the the remains of the um uh, the works the workplace uh you know that you've got the big green walls of machines that have um, been left derelict is it is it still or when you were there presumably everything was just left and people just run away yeah i mean um people just ran now throughout the years there's there's a wall around it and um people can still hop the wall um that that room that control room that you were just referencing it, it, you know it's been stripped of all its copper wiring it's been you know it's seen a lot of uh, vandal vandalism um, and they do have you know one or two guards on site um, but it's pretty much just as it's left uh, it's a very dangerous place to go in uh, the lab you may have seen the one with all the the bottles of chemicals um, jennifer when we were in the lab with you know the guards are walking around with us she was she was about to put her purse on the table, on one of the lab tables, so she could make some notes. And one of the guards just yelled, no, don't, because the just the dust is still highly toxic. Um, there's one containment building that's filled with 40 tons of cyanide um, that still is there. They've they bricked it up. Um, you know, so that, that in itself is a disaster waiting to happen because it's eventually going to go into the groundwater and start yeah. the whole process again. There's uh, echoes of Chernobyl in that story. Isn't Very it? much so. Yeah. On a lighter note, um, <laughs> one of the other projects that uh, that I'm, I'm intrigued with as well on your website is is called or well, you've titled it Selfie Nation, um, <laughs> and and it you know obviously it, it is what it is. It's people taking selfies and uh, beyond the pictures themselves, which obviously are great. I I want to I also notice combined with this that you've done a lot of um aerial photography from uh, hot air balloons and uh, various kind of airborne devices. So with the uh, the selfies, the phones, the drones that we have now, how how do you think in your time that uh, photography for the masses has changed? Uh, I'm just uh, well <clears throat> referencing the the selfies uh that's really just obviously it's very tongue-in-cheek i'm 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 constantly 
amazed at <clears throat> one's fascination with themselves in their environment. Um, I don't like being in front of the camera. I'm rarely in front of the camera. Uh, I prefer to be behind it. Um, but these days, I mean, not just now, but people have a fascination <clears throat> with placing themselves in their environment. And I asked somebody once, why, why are you taking a selfie here? I think it was the Grand Canyon. And they said, well, because I want to prove that I've been here, which I guess is you know, legitimate. But I, I said, well, can't you just take a picture and tell people you were here? Um, and the person said, well, no one would believe me. I just thought that was really, really interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know, from a sociological standpoint, that we have to prove that we're here. Um, and it's just, and some of them are just kind of silly um, and they're fun. There was one guy who's taking, he's on the edge of the Grand Canyon and uh, he's taking a, a selfie of himself, but the problem is he's looking at the Grand Canyon. So I presume his picture is of himself with the car parked behind him. So, <laughs> so they're, they're, they're kind of funny and it's just kind of my little poke at, you know, people's fixations. Yeah. It is. I, I totally agree with you. It's it's a very bizarre thing, selfies. But but you know, it, it's the world we are in. Mm -hmm. um, but the the whole um, kind of elevated photography that you were doing in in air balloons and uh, things like that, it, has that kind of gone away now with the advent of drones? Do you think? Uh, yes and no. I mean, that started actually the the whole idea that started when when I knew we were going to go to India to work on the Bhopal story. I needed a way to get. Uh, I wanted a way to get uh, shoot from an elevated position and I didn't own a drone. Uh, and in those days uh, you would have to spend a lot of money and then there would be local restrictions uh, against it. So I thought, well, <clears throat> what's another way I could get my camera up there? And I thought a kite. So I did a, did a fair amount of research and I've got several kites uh, settled on one that behaved really, really well. It was, quite stable um, and it's nine feet across and it's your typical sort of delta wing kind of kite that every kid plays with. Uh, but it, on a good wind, it could lift about 15 to 20 pounds. So once the kite is up there about a hundred feet and you know, it's behaving properly, then I would attach to the line. So about a hundred feet down from the kite, a picavet, which is kind of like a camera mount system that balances itself and then and it also has a little bit of a radio control uh, button that i can control from where i'm standing and i can pitch the camera up and down i can turn it 360 degrees and because i was shooting with the x100 it was pretty pretty wide field of view um, so i could just get it over top of what i wanted and i couldn't see what it was taking a picture of but i could look up and see where it was pointed um, so that really fascinated me. I, I ended up not taking it to India, but I did use it quite a bit for the athletes' village just down the street here uh, for the Pan Am Games. So documenting the building of the, uh, the village, uh, which is now a condo community. But uh, and that was a really great way of getting the camera up, you know, 100 or 200 feet, and getting uh, really terrific aerials and and you know, with a pretty stable wind, you could get even really close to the, the top of a crane uh, with, with quite decent precision. But then as the buildings grew up, it kind of churned up the airflow so the kites behaved a little bit more erratically. So at that point I shifted to, uh, instead of flying during a windy day, flying during a day with no wind and uh, an eight foot wide helium uh, balloon with about a three mil poly uh, skin. And that could hold, that could easily hold a, a pretty heavy camera and I could operate it the same way. The, um, the construction company, this construction team building the village, they brought in a big um, uh, shipping container uh, and that was what I used as my garage for the balloon. I just kept it inflated and uh, parked it in there. And on a day that there was no wind, I would just walk over and uh, pull it out and start taking photographs, you know, in a snowstorm uh, or not really storms, but 
when it was snowing or in the heat of the summer. Uh, it was a really great way to get uh, photographs without having to go the drone route. Yeah. Now, would you would you hang a uh, ten thousand US dollar GFX from one of those balloons? Uh, <laughs> uh, would it have to be mine? <laughs> yeah, good answer. Good answer. Yeah, let's let's leave that then. I, honestly, I'm looking at the. I, there's so much stuff I want to talk to you about in terms of the uh, the project. Uh, I I I I'm terrible because I always. I look at the places other people live and think, oh, I wish I was there so I could experience these things. And of course, you know, we have the, we have good experiences in the UK as well. They're just very different. Um, but your, uh, the Canada 150 and the USA 150, uh, you know, this, this idea, Patrick LaRock did a similar thing. Uh, he just woke up one morning and said to his wife, I'm going, that's it. I'm off. I'm going for three weeks and going coast to coast. And so, you know, how, what's the story behind your, your uh, 150 stories? Well, the Canada 150 is the 150th uh, anniversary of, uh, of Canada. So uh, I knew that the GFX uh, 50 uh, was coming out uh, in the future. And, and Canada, you know, it's a big camera. It's a big sensor. Canada's a huge country. Um, so I thought, I pitched to Fujifilm Canada that we celebrate not only the birthday of Canada, but also this large um, camera and large sensor by taking it from the Pacific, right on the shore of the Pacific Ocean at, on Vancouver Island, all the way across to the east coast of Newfoundland and just document uh, this country um, with this camera. And it, the two worked uh, really well together. But it was, a, you know, and it had to be done and I wanted to, it to be done in one month it's just a bit over fourteen thousand kilometers, and uh, it was it was tricky. Uh, you know, picking the month was tricky. So I, I picked April because I thought, oh well, there would be some nice flowers, perhaps in the prairies, and and uh, by the time we got to you know Toronto or Ontario, things would start greening up. But it didn't work that way at all. We had well, there were still you know eight foot snowbanks. Uh, and impassable roads in the Rockies. Um, we had storm clouds over the prairies, which looked beautiful. Um, and, you know, in the prairies, we were having lunch and we heard some people at uh, the tables talking about the fact that there was a snowstorm happening in, um, in Newfoundland. So by the time we got to Newfoundland, we, you know, there, a ferry was stuck in the ice a few times. So we that dashed one of our hopes. Uh, but we did end up the trip, you know, with these absolutely fascinating and beautiful, beautiful icebergs on the year of one of their heaviest iceberg seasons. So it was um, it was really just a fun way to pitch, uh, you know, the GFX coming out um, and also combining it with the story of this country, which is enormous um, and has varied landscapes from, you know, marine life or marine lands to prairies to mountains it's a uh, i'm looking at the um uh, the thumbnail view of that page right now and i really encourage everybody to go and look at it because it's it's so well curated in terms of the colors and the flow and uh, you know the season the the, the winter season as, as you can see it but i think uh, you know it's hard to pick a a kind of favorite picture but i suppose the one that jumps out of me and i think it's because of the flash of orange is the is the boat pilot in mm. his orange in his orange suit and you there's these big storm clouds and this big rock of ice and uh you know i i, I also have a gfx so i know it, it's it's not the easiest thing to be shooting with when you're on a <laughs> in the middle of the sea in the middle of a storm so well it got swamped with a lot of salt water uh, at one point the the wave came into the zodiac and then bounced back out, swamping the camera. Um, but it was fine; it just kept going. Yeah. <laughs> now, tell me about the time that you were um, was it hunting trips with the, the Inuits? Is there is that story there? Yeah, I've been up to <clears throat> the high Arctic a, a few times. Um, the first time, actually, I went up to paint because uh, I was into painting landscapes um, for a while. Um, and befriended this this uh, slightly older guy in the in the town, and he was going out to a um, to a hunting party out on the sea ice. Uh, this is in June, so there's still about eight feet of ice. Um, 
and gave me a snowmobile and said, you know, keep up. And it took about six or eight hours to get out to the hunting party, stay there for a couple of days and then, um, and then came back, uh, you know, with one of the Inuit boys on the back of my snowmobile. But um, I'd been up there previously, or I'd been up there again since then to um, go up the coast of Greenland and back into the, uh, across the strait and into the Northwest Passage. But that was also a really great way to explore and tell the story of Northern Canada, a place that is really expensive to get to, um, but also really, really beautiful and rich in visuals while we have it. Um, you know, so that's another interesting story. You know, we, well, we were chatting just beforehand about the uh, the astro, the nighttime photography that you're you seem to be getting into. Um, what, what what kind of first of all, what does that entail, and uh, what what kind of technology, what kind of camera systems do, would you use for something like that? Um, <clears throat> pretty much using what I've what I've got, which is X100 and XT3 and my beloved X Pro Twos. Um, they all take fantastic images in the dark. Um, it, you've just got to kind of figure out, you know, what lens you're going to use. So something wide and wide, prime and fast, um, uh, and then just, you know, really just uh, taking multiple pictures at ISOs that start at about 100 or 1600 ISO and go up to maybe 6400, shooting exposures that are about 10 to 15 seconds in length because you don't want to go too much further than that because the stars um, <clears throat> the stars will have some movement to them and so they won't be in these nice little fine pinpricks of light. They'll start looking like a little grain of rice because they're moving all night. So just a solid tripod and uh, a camera and, and not being afraid, um, not being afraid to put the ISO up really high. I've shot um, the night sky at 10,000 ISO, but what I do is I will take pictures that are maybe 10 to 12 seconds in length, so there's no star movement. There is a fair amount of noise, but if you take 20 pictures, you know, using the built-in intervalometer, uh, 20 pictures of the same scene, and then stack those and align them because the stars will have drifted a bit. Once they're aligned and stacked, you can then just basically eliminate all the noise by setting them all to lighten in the blend mode. Um, so that noise that you do get from the high ISO, high ISO is, is virtually gone by the time uh, you know, you're done. And then you take a long exposure of the ground uh, at a lower ISO so it's nice and clean. And then you just basically blend the ground, that nice clean ground with the stacked, um, and realign sky final image. Yeah, I think that the blend mode options in Photoshop are fantastic, aren't they? There's so much control over them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and also, I presume, now I know that you do workshops for the, the night photography, but I'm guessing you have some amazing, like in the UK, seriously, Spencer, it's been, um, it's just been cloudy for since about 1975. <laughs> so we, we just don't really have the chance. Um, yeah. where, where do you go? Where do you go to, to, to get your dark skies? Well, there's a great uh, feature, a great map called Dark Sky Finder. And it lists, it shows you graphically and by color coding, uh, the really hot spots. So obviously around Toronto, London, you know, all these major cities, they're, they're white hot, so they'll be white. And as you get away from those, the colors kind of cool down a little bit and eventually into these black areas that have no light pollution. So that's what I uh, consult when I go on trips or when I do my uh, all night uh, night photography workshops. We're, we're pretty lucky here in, a, in Ontario because although Toronto and the, and the greater Toronto area is really, really bright. It doesn't take long at all to get into an area that's really dark. So, <clears throat> you know, we shoot at a dark sky preserve, uh, a couple of, uh, about two hours north of Toronto. And then through the night, we keep continuing, we continue moving north and then eventually into a very large provincial park called Algonquin Park. 
And there it is truly dark. There is, it's far enough away from any village or town or city that the skies are truly black around the time of a new moon. And because of that, then the stars are just breathtaking and the Milky Way is really, really obvious in these places. Um, so you don't have to get too far, but it is handy to check that map out just, just for interest sake, just to see what we've done to our planet uh, in terms of light pollution. Um, so uh, in terms of business and workshops and COVID and all that kind of stuff, I suppose that's had a, a big impact. But I'm looking, I've got, I see I'm eyeing up your workshops now. Insatiable Istanbul 2022. That sounds, I, I might book myself on that, you know. <laughs> well, that was, um, so 2019, I did in Istanbul, the first Istanbul uh, workshop with a client uh, that was on the Paris workshop that um, uh, that I did um, with Ian McDonald, who I know you had on your show ages ago. Um, he's from the West Coast. Um, I just fell in love with Istanbul. It was just, it's now my favorite city. And so the next year, you know, last year was supposed to be um, uh, a five-day Istanbul um, workshop and then another 10-day Eastern Turkey so and Southeast Turkey, so kind of close to the Syrian border in that Mesopotamia area. But of course, it had to be canceled because of COVID and, and same with this summer as well. Um, I was supposed to be in Turkey right about now. Um, <clears throat> so... Those have all had to go away. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I will be doing the first uh, all-night workshop here in Ontario for the first time in a long time. I always ask um, our guests at the end uh, two quick questions, and uh, the first one is: What would you what would you say to a an eighteen-year-old Spencer Wynn? What would you whisper in his ears? Um, don't be shy. Um, I, I was brought up with, you know, my dad is British and, you know, children should be seen and not heard, you know, and don't get into people's faces and all that. So, um, you know, I, I was I was terribly afraid of uh, approaching people and, you know, and uh, but now, um, you know, as I tell some of my students, yeah, it's, you know, it can be nerve wracking if you stop somebody on the street and want to do their portrait, um, but push yourself and don't be shy. And, uh, I did a project to get over that. I did a project where I did a, uh, a portrait of a stranger every day for the for a year, and I think and uh, I think maybe maybe three or four said no, which I was absolutely amazed at. But it certainly got me over my um, uh, discomfort from you know shooting you know photographing strangers, and and that shyness that you know. We, we carry around with us. So I would say, yeah, you know, just be bold and don't be shy just because people, no one's going to yell at you. <laughs> oh, quite right. And you're not the first person I've heard say that about the um, uh, portraits, you know, just, just going out and, and forcing yourself to, to get portraits. Now, how did, how would you have done that? Did, were you using a, uh, I don't know, an X100 or maybe it was before the Fujifilm Times? No, I was, I was using an X100. Um, and that helps as well. As you know, it's, it's very discreet. It's very quiet. Um, you know, if someone sees you coming towards them with a, you know, a big 70 to 200, well, you know, they, you know, they start to get a little nervous, but with this, it just looks like, you know, it just looks like a point and shoot, um, which in essence it is almost. Um, so yeah, so I was using that and I would just carry a little off camera flash if I needed to, if it was, a in the early morning hours, I just, you know, put it in my left hand so I can get a little bit of side light just to get a, some interesting lighting. But that, that was it. Just, just something stripped down. The final question that I always ask people also is if you could choose one photographer, either alive or dead, to spend the day <laughs> shooting with, uh, who might it be and, and, and why? I would really like to uh, spend the day with that photography teacher I had back in 79 to 84, uh, when I was at the Ontario College of Art. His name was Ken Bell, and he was in the uh, Canadian Armed Forces as a photographer. Uh, just a fascinating guy. Um, landed at Normandy, um, 
luckily, obviously, he wasn't killed. Um, but his stories, uh, we, you know, I don't know how much photography we did. We just loved listening to his stories. Um, and it would have been really interesting to go through France with him um, and just through the villages and see how he uh, tells his stories. I mean, his images are remarkable, but it would be really fun to go uh, you know, back into that time as well, but um, to, to experience that, but also just to be with that guy. Well, I just searched for him actually, and uh, he's he's good. You, you know, you've made it when you've got a Wikipedia page. And uh, <laughs> yeah, June of 26, 2000, he passed away. But but yeah, I mean, phenomenal, phenomenal stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and maybe Thomas Heaton. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, yeah, Thomas Heaton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. Uh, Spencer, honestly, it's been it's been wonderful. I've been. Uh, I know that we 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 kind of crossed paths in in the Czech Republic a few years ago and, and never actually got to sit down and meet each other. So yeah, well, I think we missed each other by a day. Yeah, something like that. Uh, wonderful. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll catch up again soon, hopefully. All right. Great talk to you. Spencer Wynn there and really, truly, honestly, do check out his website and his Instagram. All of the links will be on the show notes, of course. Really a very, very, very good photographer. Okay, book review time. And I'm throwing Gemma to the lines a little bit here. She has the book in front of her and it is... It's David Bailey, If We Shadows. Okay, hang on, I'm going in. Prefaced by George Melly. Who's George Melly? George yeah. Melly, was, he was the man on the telly, wasn't he? George Melly, the man on the telly. That's Roger Melly. Oh. Sometimes tender and witty, often violent and disturbing, David Bailey's photographs have not lost their power to arouse and shock, nor the aesthetic appeal make, which makes them linger in the mind. They constitute one of today's most characteristic iconographies. Um, so this is a personal selection of classic work from the 1980s. What do you think of David Bailey, Kev? Oh, I, I like David Bailey. He's a bit scary. He's very scary. He, he's the most, he is the most acerbic person. Okay, flick to a page. This I is am what we do. There's a really nice quote by Shakespeare. Okay. I think we've established I'm not very good at reading out loud, so I won't read it. <laughs> On the first one, like a, few, like a plaque at a um, cemetery in loving memory of David Bailey, loving, beloved husband of Olive. So then you turn to the next pages, like a double page of Jack Nicholson doing a pretty, what's his name in that film? Here's Johnny. Face. Yeah. Black and whites. What do you think of the black and whites? Mm, not such a fan of those Nicholson pictures, but the next page is a beautiful picture of a, like a stone carving of a hand and a guy, which I'd have to look in the back to tell you who it is. Do you know who that is? No? No. Excellent. But I'll tell you what, the difference is is that the emotion in the Jack Nicholson pictures, he's just kind of, you know, he's acting up for the camera. Whereas in this other picture, he's kind of, the guy's turned away. It's really, really grainy. Um, do you have like a brownie overtone, do you say? A brownie overtone. Yeah, but they're not black, black and white, no, right, no, no. are they? Yeah, there's a, slight, there's a slight golden hue to them. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah. Right, I'm going to open the book in the middle. Oh, um, very beautiful nude sort of top torso pictures of a a woman on one page she's got a towel over her face the next page she's got a towel on her head but they are really amazing aren't They're they gorgeous the, pictures. Te the texture in the wall and the towel do you know what it is texture isn't it because you've got the texture of her skin her the skin on her shoulder the texture of the wall behind her and the texture of the towel and that's what i really like in photographs i like the fact that the some of the pictures are small and cropped and square mm-hmm and others fill, like completely fill the page. Quite a lot of famous people, Mick Jagger, um, some of the supermodels. And then there's quite a lot of masks and sort of statues. Ooh. So the ones, I think it's interesting that the shots that are more candid, the ones in the street, the ones, if you just flick back to the page you were on, um, seem to be, you know, straight on kind of on camera flash type style. Whereas his uh, studio shots are obviously much more considered in terms of the lighting. And I think there's, you know, you, you don't see too much of Bailey's work that is the, the candid street style, if you like. But there's, there's elements of it in this book. I quite like, he's done, it's quite interesting because it does, 
it is really jarring. So you've got the the studio shots, and then you've got like really really striking iconography. Like there's um, a statue of Christ and a close up of his face with the crown of thorns and blood dripping down his face. Um, next to you know an actress outside a hotel next to uh, an actor smiling and a um quite scary looking sort of death mask so it's quite it's quite jarring actually if you flick through it it's almost better than going through it page by page is it quite an old book uh no so it's uh, well it's 2001 but the images are relatively old 1980s aren't they yeah and um yeah, you can. You can. It's a easily obtainable book. Uh, it's a big book, nice big. Feels good in the hand. Uh, it's really well printed, I think, because it is all black and white. So the you know you, that's really important with with books that have black and white print in them. I think is the the printing. Sometimes you just see you lose the shadows too much, and it's a bit oversaturated. But the printing of this is good, and it's a softback as well as Gemma said. Um, it's a vertical book, so you know it's. They, but they haven't. Uh, they haven't butchered the images you know they've they've decided instead of splitting across pages that if a if an image is is horizontal it's just going to be smaller on the page and and i I think that's good that's sid vicious isn't it next to the picture of a severed pig's head Hmm. a severed pig's head taken from behind so the the cut so you can see all the innards it's quite gross but i don't know it's one of those images you can't stop looking at really because you never see that way round so we never really discussed this when we're doing the book reviews but mm-hmm. uh you know, is this the kind of book that you would you, you know you'd have on your uh your table when you have got guests coming around would you be happy for them to pick that up and have a glance i don't love it as much as i love some of the books that you've got but i think it's it would depend on the mood it is quite jarring it is quite you know we just turned to a newborn baby being breastfed next to an old woman lying on the street holding a poster of uh, the Virgin Mary. So it's kind of death and life and and then a bit of celeb and glamour. Yeah, I can't decide. Don't it's know. honest, isn't it? It's honest. It is very honest. And I think that's that's what they're alluding to with the, the title of the book, If We Shadows. I think it's, you know, it's it's all about that, the honesty. Um, and, and in fact, reading the blurb, it says, uh, you know, through these, th- though these shadows may offend... They also excite and instruct and show us the world of a photographer whose vision has been ever sharpened by time. You know what, as well, the more I think about it, there's a little bit of history here. That's Geldof, isn't it? That's yeah. Bob Geldof. Bob, it's Bob Geldof with his pass around his neck from the Band-Aid. Mm-hmm. Um, just sort of standing there, you know, the big smile of an honest face. And next to him is um, some religious iconography again. And... and you know, he was called, wasn't he, Saint Bob? And, you know, that he was really sort of held up as this sort of angel that was going to save um, mm. all of these children in Africa. And, um, yeah, so now looking back on that, what, uh, 30, 40 years later, that is quite interesting. That's kind of my era. Oh, we won't talk about that one. I might not leave it on the table where my dad was coming round. All right, so uh, the book of the week was David Bailey, If We Shadows. And, of course, we will link to it on the show notes. Uh, It is available on Amazon. However, you must. It's very important that you use local booksellers instead of Amazon. Okay, another question. This is from Jeff Petrie. And he says, I've always loved stills photography and have been doing it for several decades. Most contemporary digital cameras are now hybrids that do still photography as well as video. I'd like to try my hand at making compelling interest in travel uh, in brackets, if we're ever allowed to do that again, and live videos, but having a clue what I'm doing. I've searched YouTube and other sources, and most everything that I found tells me what to do, but not how or why to do. Any pointers, tips, or suggestions on how to get started? Uh, he's not talking about camera settings, as there are plenty of videos on that, uh, more about why or how to get on with it. Um, well, okay, so Neil obviously would be best to answer this in terms of uh, video making, but I think I would say to you, Jeff, you know, if you if you really just want to kind of get up and run in, uh, stick the camera on P mode, and I know that's a setting thing, but stick the camera on P mode and just start looking through the viewfinder and see what you find interesting. And when it comes to one of the well, and one of the problems I always have when I'm thinking about making kind of small clips or small films is what will 
what will the viewer find interesting? And it's the same as when doing stills, really. If you think about that from a storytelling point of view, the five W's, who, why, what, where, when, try and think about that first, you know, write down, jot it down, um, you know, what am I telling the story of? Who's in it? Why are they there? What's going on? Uh, you know, how, how am I going to make this this thing connect, connect the dots? And, uh, you know, start also thinking about it as a uh, as a story in that, every good film and uh well every good story whether it's a film or whether it's written will have a start a middle and an end so think about those three elements as well along with the five w's but really ultimately i think it's uh you know it's it's down to this idea of we talked about it earlier this idea of of what interests you mostly and uh, you know Gemma Gemma's spends far more time uh, filming clips on her phone than I do and you know what what are you looking for are you just looking for family memories or are you you know what's happening in your head when you're doing that yeah well obviously I'm around the kids all the time and we've got the horse and we're doing all that kind of stuff and the kids do funny things and the dogs and I'm you know I'm just doing that but um I think having you know lived with Kev the photographer for a long time um overthinking it and yeah, you can overthink the five W's, whatever they are. But like, who cares? You've got obviously some kit to do it. Um, you know, what makes you laugh? What do you think? I mean, starting from a point of what makes you laugh is always good. We were watching um, Motherland last night, which is very hilarious BBC One um, sitcom. Um, but it's really just about mums in at, at school. And it doesn't have to be even that interesting. You know, you could, I could run around the stables where I am with the kids and the horses and the dogs and probably get three minutes of film about horse life, which would probably be quite funny. But I would probably just do that because I'm not a photographer and I'm not overthinking it. So stick a day in your calendar where you're going to make a three minute film and go and do it on anything and then see if you like it or not and go from there because you'll you'll definitely start and then you'll evolve and then you'll find your style but if you don't start you never will which is why Kev's going out tomorrow to uh do some street photography <laughs> uh but yeah I mean I mean Gem is right but and you're also right Jeff about YouTube is often full of you know how to do this and how to do that and that's basically because that that works in the in the algorithms and it makes these people more money but I would say, I, as, a, as a kind of uh, curveball, leave YouTube, well, you know, head away from YouTube and go to Vimeo. Uh, Vimeo is far more artistic. I think there's millions of films on there that are just beautiful. And I often just type in black and white film into Vimeo and I can sit there for hours on end just watching these amazingly creative films. Often they're about travel. Often they're about people. There's interviews. There's all kinds of stuff on there. But it's not anything like you'll see on youtube that none of it is uh you know top 10 tips on how to take a picture and all that kind of stuff it's just creative and it's artistic and it's it's wonderful so i'd go to to vimeo and, and you know have a gander in there that might give you some some ideas of uh of direction to go on the on the the occasions that i've done um kind of videos and films commercial stuff that's what i've done i've gone to vimeo left youtube behind gone to vimeo and that's that's where i get all of my inspiration for filmmaking from uh youtube is 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 a bit cluttered really okay how do you think we did what do you, what do you think neil would give us out of 10 one for pressing record oh shit <laughs> <laughs> oh we're so bad what time did we start we started at like three it's now 10 to 11 <laughs> good job the kids are at my mum's yeah. imagine <laughs> Okay, yeah, I will. Uh, Neil probably will help me for this, but I am going to put some outtakes at the end. Uh, thank you so much once again, everybody, for uh, listening to the, the Fujicast podcast uh, without Neil this week. And hopefully, please, Lord, let him be back next week. Uh, thank you to our uh, interview guest, Spencer Wynn. And the book of the week this week, Gemma, was... If We Shadows by David Bailey. Indeed it was. Uh, thank you to everybody who helps us out on Patreon. See you in the Facebook group. And don't forget you can send emails to clickupfoodcast.co.uk. See you next week. Bye. Sorry. Bye. Right. Testing. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. This is my mic. This is my mic. And this is my mic. This is my mic. One, two, three. One, two, three. This is my mic. Right. It's me and you, babe. <laughs> Didn't spill any on your microphone. 
it's it's a simple sentence. It begins with the word as. As Reddit mentions, Kevin remembered the human. Respect for others. <laughs> Respect for others. <laughs> Kevin often comes across. Okay, okay, it's okay. My, you're married. It's my name. It's easy to remember my name. Kevin often comes across as a practical person. <laughs> You read, I can't do it. You do it. Come on, come on, come on, just concentrate. Okay. We'll stop laughing then. Perhaps that's more difficult to define. Would success in this group mean consistent self satisfaction? (laughs) (laughs) You just I hate you. In that functionality that your phone. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I'll go and I'll turn it off. I'll turn it off. Carry on. You can do it. The next word is the. <laughs> the run of episodes beginning with the. With some, oh, oh, that's that's rubbish. You read that sentence. Enjoyability or on functionality. <laughs> that's not even a. Okay. <laughs> that's a stupid question.